think I'm a fool? I didn't think so. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like this before. I think you just said something. Think, 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 think. Hello and welcome back. It is time to put your thinking cap on and start processing your worldview, Christian. And we do that by thinking biblically. So I'm here to tell you that God's message comes through and to all. We are marching through, and we are at the place in our Old Testament where historically things get difficult, mainly for us because what we're trying to do is go through this as linearly as possible. That's why we kind of went from Genesis all the way through, um, really right straight through Second Chronicles, and then we grabbed Isaiah. Why? Well, because Isaiah is the first of your major prophets chronologically. I don't want to get way out of the kingdom years and into the history and then have to try to go back through all the prophets. I want some of that historical context to be still fresh in your mind when it is t- as you're thinking through the message of these prophets. So, as you are looking at the title, we are, yes, going to try to run through five of the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. The reason we are running through this five is not simply because they are the first five of the minor prophets, although that is relatively helpful, but because of where they fall historically. So, There's a lot of, um, how should we put this, wiggle room (laughs) in the history here because we don't get exact dates to have nailed down, so we have to go with ranges. So if you're keeping track at home, Hosea, 755 to 710, Joel, 835 to 796, Amos, 763 to 755, Obadiah, 850 to 840, Jonah, 784 to 760. What you'll immediately notice is, wait a minute, these guys are all contemporaries to Isaiah. Yes, yes they are. That's why we're covering them right after we covered Isaiah. So what are we going to do? Well, we're going to go through these books in big picture format, which could be easier said than done or not, because some of these books are relatively long, you know, 14, 15 chapters. Some of them are one. We'll see the gambit of that today. But what I want to make sure we do is, and if you go home, and I recommend you read these yourself anyway. As you read them, though, the trick to reading prophetic literature is read it with the big picture in mind. Yes, there is tremendous value in taking out the jackhammer and digging into the prophecies and what's the imagery and what's the exact message and how does it go back and how does it go forward. Excuse me, can't stop yawning suddenly. There is great benefit to doing that. But, 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 if you want to understand the totality of your Bible, do that last. First, read your prophets with an aim and a mindset towards what's the overarching message? What's the point year after year, decade after decade, prophet after prophet? What should I be getting out of this in light of the grand narrative? Understand that first, then try to dig into the details. This has been my complaint with people on eschatology. We have way too many Christians in the church who are absolute experts on the finest points of pre, mid, and post-tribulational rapture and every nook and cranny that has to do with premillennial dispensationalism. 
they haven't grasped the sovereignty of God. They haven't grasped salvation by grace through faith first. They have dug into this minutia, and they have missed the forest for the trees. Now, I'm not saying don't be an expert on your theology. Be an expert on your theology as best you can, but start with the big picture and then work your way down, not the other way around. So, with all that said, let's see if we can understand this. We're going to read a big section from Hosea 1 here. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry. Um, just because I never assume. I was preaching in Genesis once. I think it was in Genesis when this came up. And I made mention, no, it was not in Genesis. What was it in? Oh, shoot fire. What was the book? Oh, it just went right out of my head and you don't care and it doesn't matter. So anyway, and I was talking about the historical context of um, something in the New Testament and mentioned that there was a brothel for the uh, the cultic prostitutes of some god. I don't. I might have been talking about something with Corinthians. And anyway, some sweet little lady in her 60s came up to me after the service and said, what's a brothel? <laughs> I'm just like, how do you... Like, how do you how do you live into the to the second decade of the twenty first century as an adult and, and not know the word brothel? But okay, so take a wife of harlotry, marry a harlot, marry a prostitute, marry a lady of the evening, have children of harlotry, have a family with this woman, for the land commits flagrant harlotry forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, name him Jezreel for yet a little while. And I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Je house of Israel. On that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, name her Lo Ruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. And keep going. When she had weaned Lo-Ruamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people and I am not your God. In other words, your sin has so corrupted you that you have been cast out from God. This is a problem. This is what the marriage of Hosea is to symbolize. The prophet of God is being called to a very difficult thing. I mean, look, this is kind of the number one rule of dating. You, you don't marry the prostitute, right? Well, that's what Hosea, God's prophet, is being commanded to do. Why? It's an object lesson. What are the people? The people are wicked and sinful. Now, God is warning them. God is going to bring judgment upon them. The beauty of this is chapter 3. The Lord said, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. So I bought her for myself. By the way, raisin cakes are part of pagan idolatry. That's not Raisin cakes aren't evil, although they might be, because raisins might actually be evil. But in this context, no, that's not what we're going on about. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and an omer and a half of barley. Then I said to her, You shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man, so I will be able to so I so I will also be toward you. For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or idols. 
I'm sorry, with king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or household idols. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. I'm being stared at. Pause. Ah, the joys of an office. In your world, in the last, between my last couple of words, it's been a few seconds. In my world, it's been over an hour. <laughs> so we were talking about Hosea. People were coming in, and literally all of a sudden somebody was just staring over the little wall in the sound booth, scaring me half to death. So gotta love it. Anyway, Hosea is going to redeem Gomer. Why? Not because she deserves it, but because that's what a loving husband does. God is going to redeem Israel. Why? Not because they deserve it. Because that's what a loving husband does. That's why Hosea can continue. He levels the charges in chapters 4 through 6. In chapter 7 through 10, he lays out the consequences for sin. Christian, never forget this. In a world in which we are responsible to God, when we do not walk in his ways, when we do not do what is right in his sight, when we do not follow in this world the way he has laid down that it should function, there are always going to be consequences because there is a right way in which this world should work. And if we don't follow that, things go badly quickly. But the punchline here is this. 11 through 14. Redemption, God, longing for his people. Ephraim, reminded of what will go on. Reminders of the idolatry and then the promise of what? Future blessings. In other words, there is sin, there is iniquity, there is judgment. But God is gracious and loving and kind and will redeem his people. That gets you to Joel. Joel, chapter 1, picture of devastation. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. What the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Awake, drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has made my vine a waste, my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become as white. Dun, da, da, da. Judgment will come. Once again, the reminder of the prophets that if sin and iniquity continues, and it is continuing because humanity is sinful, judgment will come upon you. So, Chapter 2, you get the terrible visitation, the warnings of the day of the Lord, the promises of deliverance. And it will come about after this, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be delivered. Delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Remember, our foundations. God is Savior and Judge. And he's doing both at the same time. So while he is judging sin, he is saving his people. While he is saving his people, he is judging sin. So what's the conclusion? Behold in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Jude and Jerusalem. 
salvation. I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance of Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and have divided up the land. In other words, God will judge their sins. And in that day, this is the very last of the book, the mountains will drip with sweet wine, the hills will flow with milk, and the brooks of Judah will flow with water. The spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. Egypt will become a waste, and Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah, in whose land they have shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever, Jerusalem for all generations, and I will avenge their blood which I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. In other words, as terrible as that judgment will be, as awful as the wrath of God poured out of sin, poured out on sin is, there is salvation. There is hope. There is redemption. Because God is precise in all that he does. And his judgment is precise, as is his salvation. Amos, same idea. Chapters 1 and 2, judgment. Chapters one, Chapter 1, upon the nations. Chapter 2, upon Judah and Israel. Chapter 3, the guilt of all the tribes of Israel. Chapter 4, a warning against what happens and why have you not returned to God. In other words, judgment because of your lack of repentance. Chapter 5, a call to see God. A call to turn to him. Seek me that you may live but do not resort to Bethel and do not come to Gilgal nor cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal will certainly go into captivity and Bethel will come to trouble. Seek the Lord that you may live or he will break forth like a fire, O house of Joseph, and it will consume with none to quench it for Bethel. For those who turn justice into wormwood and cast righteousness down to the earth. <clears throat> in other words, in the midst of judgment, don't follow after the people. Don't look for security in the world. It's almost like there's a New Testament verse about not loving the world or the things in the world, Second John, or First John 2. It's almost like those things exist. Why? Because I don't follow people. And the people that I do follow after, I am only following because they follow God. That's Paul's call, right? Follow after me as I follow after Christ. Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. But if I'm not imitating Christ, don't imitate me. Chapter 6 of Amos continues, warning against those who are at comfort, those who are secure in themselves. Then you get the warnings. You get a judgment vision, chapter 7. The captivity vision, chapter 8. The, another judgment vision in chapter 9. Why? In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches, and I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Water break. That they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. And I will restore the captivity, the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they will not again be rooted up from the land which I have given them, says the Lord, your God. You seen the recurring theme here? God's going to judge sin. But in the midst of that judgment against sin, the people who trust in him, the people that turn to him, will be saved. And always recognize, everybody dies. Everybody dies. Just because you're dead does not mean you died in judgment. 
you last as long as God ordains and as long as God commands. You accomplish as long as God ordains and as long as God commands. Remember, it is he who is the accomplisher. That's one of our foundations. Because we are dependent upon him, we lean upon his power. We trust in his planning that he will accomplish and sanctify us and bring us to the day of completion because he is our savior and not our judge. And when I close my eyes here, I open them in his kingdom. Obadiah, a whole 21 verses. You ready for it? We'll rapid fire this one. Edom will be judged. There you go, verses 1 through 14. The nations will be judged, 15 and 16. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape, and it will be holy, and the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. In other words, your world is not wonderful now. Things are not going great now. But God will redeem his people. Now, you may be asking yourself, who are his people? Because we're talking to Judah, and we're talking to Israel, and we're dealing with multiple kingdoms and things all over going on. And I'm, and I'm seeing, we saw this with uh, Isaiah. It's an awful lot of judgment language for the nations. You're right. You ever wonder, maybe that's why the book of Jonah exists and why it's a perfect book into us? The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry, it again, cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh. Why? Jonah tells you later on, I don't want to go to Nineveh because if I tell them you're going to judge them, they might repent. And if they repent, you're going to forgive them. And if you forgive them, they won't be judged. And I want them to be judged every single time. This goes back in your biblical history. The promise to Abram is a promise to all the nations. The festivals of Israel are festivals to God for all the nations. That's why there are prescriptions on how the foreigner amongst you may eat. Being Israel is not about being born in the right place. Being Israel is not about having the right family. Being Israel is about trusting in Yahweh. So God runs down Jonah with the storm. You know the story. They throw him overboard, and he's swallowed by the fish, right? While I was fainting away, excuse me, while I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Remember, he's not there. He's in the fish. He's been sinking into the sea. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving that which I vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. Always remember, Jonah makes it. Doesn't mean there's not consequences for your sin. Doesn't mean there's not problems with your actions. So what happens? He proclaims. He walks through and proclaims judgment. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Thirty-nine days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Thirty-eight days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And what happens? The Ninevites hear and go, <gasps> We've sinned. We must repent in sackcloth and ashes. Man and beast covered in sackcloth, call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent with, and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring, and he did not do it. All this judgment in Hosea, in Joel, in Amos, and Obadiah, all of this wrath poured out against sin and all of this promise that 
God's people will be secured. God's people will be redeemed. God's people will see the day of his dawning and not fear and cower, but rejoice and celebrate. Who are God's people? Jonah 3 tells you God's people are all the nations who will trust in him. God's people are all who will come before him in repentance and faith and rely that and realize that he is creator, that he upholds them, that he is alone the one who will judge their sin, and he alone is the one who can save them from that judgment. And that if they call upon him, that he is faithful to forgive and faithful to cover their iniquity, that he will accomplish all that he has set out to do. And he will not deal falsely with his people because he can judge their sin while redeeming yours. And he can redeem and save you from yours while judging those who are not his. And that no matter what may befalls in this world, as I trust in him and follow him, he will cleanse me from righteousness and bring me faithfully to the day of completion. Those are our foundations, Christian. That's how we live in this world. Jonah was displeased and became angry. And he prayed to the Lord saying, please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. In other words, you won't give them what they deserve. Yes, he will. Because remember, Christian, in Christ, I am clean. In Christ, I am good. In Christ, I do not deserve judgment and calamity because it's already been paid for. See, Jonah doesn't see past his own nose here. And that's why God's response, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and left, as well as many animals? In other words, this is still a great people. This is still a mighty nation. This is still humanity upon which we care. This is again why Christian. You ready? Here's, here's how you apply all this. How do you see the world? How do you understand the world? Do you want their sin judged? Of course you do. You, you want righteousness. Do you want to see their repentance? Because I got news for you. In both instances, sin is judged. Either they will die in their sin and God will judge them for it, or they will repent of their sin, and God will have judged their sin in Christ. Either way, justice is done. Why? Because God is precise, and God is long-suffering, and God is accomplishing all his good pleasure. My goal is to remember in this life that it is he who does, he who is, and he who will be. Therefore, I don't have to fear or worry, because I can look at the judgment and say, it's coming upon sin, but... That judgment will not consume me because I am Christ's and Christ is mine. And world, you too can be Christ's and Christ can be yours if you will, but trust in him and him alone. Otherwise, no promises what comes upon you. So, fun little things. This is how we will tackle the minor prophets and some of the other books. So, um, I have to look. I believe we'll still be in some prophets next week, but I will have to double check and find out. So what have we learned here today? Well, God will judge the nations. Why? Because God will judge sin. God will redeem the nations. Why? Because God will redeem his people regardless of where they are, where they have come from, and what language they speak. And God's message is for his people. 
whoever they may be. Questions, comments, complaints, send them to info at practicaltheologyministries.com. You can go to the website there. Check out the resources. The one I highly recommend to you is your Bible reading plan. Coming up on the end of the year, people start trying to make plans and think through things. If you want to just start getting into the habit, grab the reading plan, do some skim work, get yourself set up. And then if you want to tackle your Bible in a year, start that now. You can, or you make your plans to start in December or start in January, however you want to do that. But I highly recommend you do that because if you have never considered how to read your Bible with the grand scheme in mind. Hopefully this is uh, inspiring you a little bit to do that. And you will set aside the time to read your three or four chapters a day to read the Bible through in a year. It is most definitely worthwhile to see the grand narrative and to see the story on full display. So, until we meet again, read your Bible. It'll do you good.